Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Welcome to season two of Title Nerds. And we have a special guest to begin our season who is near and dear to my heart and obviously to my firm, Riker Danzig, the father of our title insurance practice here, Vince Sharkey. We thought we'd have Vince on because he has a depth of knowledge in title insurance and he has seen it from all aspects. I believe he began his career working side by side by title agents. He then, well, after a stint with the DA's office, he then came to Riker Danzig for many, many years, and actually went to Fidelity, and now he is back with us on an of-counsel basis. So we're very, very happy to have Vince with us. And Vince, let's just start. I just gave like a thumbnail sketch of your background, but why don't you tell us your career and how it focused around title insurance, real estate litigation, and your thoughts? Okay. I'll try to do it as succinctly as I can, Mike. I was at the University of Virginia Law School after a couple of years in the Army, and I met my now wife of 50-something years while I was a second-year law student, and she was a graduate student in philosophy. And at the time, I had grown up in Boston, and I was thinking about going back to Boston to practice law. Well, we came up to New Jersey, and we met, as I said, my second year of law school. We were married in the middle of my second year of law school. We were engaged after we knew each other for 17 days, and we were married in three months. Of course, I didn't know her parents very well when we were married, even. So I came up to New Jersey and met her parents, and we spent some time. I still hadn't graduated from law school and still thinking of going back to Boston. My father-in-law said to me, my father-in-law at the time owned both a mortgage and title insurance business. He was an agent for then Safeco. He owned a title insurance mortgage business in Hackensack, and it was a very big business. And he said to me, he said, you know, Vinny, I I know you're thinking about going back to Boston to practice law after you finish at Virginia, but, you know, I've got this business and I need a lot of legal work. And I'll tell you what, if you bring my daughter back to New Jersey, I will give you enough legal work to run your own law firm and make you a pretty comfortable lawyer. And I said, well, God, and that's the best offer I've had in a while. So I said, okay, okay, Judd. His name was Justin. Everybody called him Judd. I said, okay, Judd, I'm coming back to New Jersey. So I did. So Joyce and I, after we were married, came back, settled in North Jersey. I spent a year at the prosecutor's office to get some trial experience. And I have a lot of that. And then I hung out a shingle in Paramus. And I was a solo practitioner, and my biggest and perhaps only client, certainly in the beginning, was my father-in-law's mortgage business and his title insurance business. So I did title insurance claims. In those days, mostly boundary line disputes and missing liens and that sort of thing. The cases got more interesting and more difficult the more time I spent. 
But I also did a lot of zoning and planning work, and I did a lot of mortgage lending and whatever with this mortgage business. So it was a great that was it. It was a great law practice, and I did that on my own for about three years. I worked on an appeal on a difficult title insurance case with Peter Berkeley, who was then head of the real estate department at Riker. And after we handled that appeal, you know, I started saying to myself, you know, this practice is great, but I could really use a tax department, which I didn't have. And I didn't have much expertise in tax either. So I called Peter and I said, Peter, you know, I'm thinking of moving to a larger firm where I can get some tax help. And he said, oh, well, you're thinking of moving to a larger firm. Why don't you come here and talk to us at Riker? So I did. I came in and talked to Peter. He hired me. And the rest is history. And I worked with Peter in real estate, mostly real estate development, and also with Chicago Title, who had continued as a client of mine from my father-in-law's title insurance business. I continued doing mostly pretty substantial claims litigation for Chicago Title. And I did that throughout my career at Riker Danzig. When I got you know, close to retirement age, Gary Urquhart, who was the general counsel at, at Chicago Title, at his parent company, Fidelity National, down in Jacksonville, Gary had actually started practicing law with my father-in-law's title agency in Hackensack. But he had moved on and become general counsel of Fidelity National Title Group. And as I got close to retirement age, he called me and said, you know, Vinny, I know we can't afford to pay you what you can earn as a partner at Riker. But when you're thinking about retiring from Riker, come talk to us and maybe we could, you know, we could use a couple of senior, you know, major claims counsel around the country and we're interested to talk to you. So when I got close to retirement age, I talked to Gary and lo and behold, one thing led to another and I became major claims counsel at Chicago Title, at Fidelity National Title for about seven or eight years. And after that time period, I was getting uh, to become a senior citizen. And I said, well, I'll go back to Riker where, you know, hopefully they'll be uh, kind enough and patient enough to give me a give me a place to sit. And Riker did. And so I've been back here at Riker for the last the last seven or eight years. And it's been a wonderful ride. And Vince, you know, I can't tell you how grateful are that you did come back to us. Although since I know you many years, I will say you and I have a different version of succinct. But uh, Vince, with regard to your career in title insurance, I know you've had many interesting experiences. Can you give us maybe an example of, you know, sort of your most interesting cases outside counsel? And then maybe we'll ask you, you know, an interesting case that you handled in-house and the differences between the the approaches and how you handle those those particular tasks. Well, I guess my my most interesting case as outside counsel was the case against the Board of Proprietors of the Eastern Division of New Jersey that we handled on behalf of Chicago Title's insured American Timber Company. And that case involved an island in the Manasquan River of about about 45, 50-acre island. And the Board of Proprietors, which, as title nerds know, been in existence since the grant of New Jersey and Pennsylvania from the King of England to the Duke of York back in the mid-1600s, the proprietors, their interests in land were not seized by New Jersey after the Revolutionary War. So the, the British subjects who were granted 
what was then the colony of New Jersey became the owners of what they hadn't already conveyed when it became the state of New Jersey. And they continued in existence for well over 300 years. Then in the mid-1990s, they filed a quiet title action against Chicago Titles Insured, which had a pretty clear chain of title back to the mid-1800s, as everybody, as every title nerd knows, at least. You know, the devolution of title is not clear through the 1700s, the revolutionary period, into the early 1800s until all the county clerk's offices got set up and running. So the Board of Proprietors had essentially the best title plan, what was happening in New Jersey, in the state of New Jersey. And they filed a quiet title action, and we were retained to defend that action on behalf of American Timber Company, which was Chicago Titles Insured. We defended that action both by attempting to prove that the proprietors had, in fact, conveyed that island to a John Lawrence back in the late 1600s, and also by proving that we had secured title by by way of adverse possession in the event that the proprietors hadn't already conveyed title. The proprietors were not the sovereign, so adverse possession runs against the proprietors, even though it might not run against the state of New Jersey or the whatever sovereign we're talking about here in the United States. So we defended the case. We ultimately made a motion for summary judgment on both grounds, on the grounds that the proprietors had conveyed the island, and also on the basis of adverse possession. We made a motion for summary judgment, which was granted. We then made a motion for fees for frivolous litigation against the board, arguing that there was just no way on earth they could ever prove that they hadn't conveyed the island first, and secondly, that they still had good title to it after all many all these many hundreds of years. And in defense of that case, the proprietors had to hire an expensive law firm, and they eventually, I guess internally, we were part of those discussions, decided that it was time for them to give up their claims to the remaining land in New Jersey, and they conveyed their remaining title to the state of New Jersey. So that was that was an interesting title case. I had an interesting planning board zoning case also, which title nerds will appreciate. Well, real estate lawyers will appreciate, maybe not so much title nerds, involving a piece of property on the Hudson River where a major multinational corporation retained us to secure development approvals for it to build a research laboratory right on the river in New Jersey. We had some riparian claims for ancient creek beds on the property, which we had to settle by getting a grant, getting a riparian grant from the Thailand's Resource Council in New Jersey, zoning approval issue we brought before the municipality. And that was my most interesting zoning case. We brought executives over from England to testify on on behalf of the application for this lab. We brought planning experts over, surveyors over. We had a whole panoply of people prepared to testify at the zoning hearing because we were prepared for a lot of local resistance. So we're at the hearing after a lot of preparation. We get up, I get up to make my introduction of my witnesses. The mayor of the municipality just happened to be there at the hearing. He wasn't sitting on the board. And he said, Mr. Sharkey, before you start your application and start calling your witnesses, I just wanted to say that your client has been a wonderful corporate member of our community 
for the last hundred years with a manufacturing facility in town. It's been a great employer. It's donated two fire engines to the town. And I just want you to know and your client to know how much we appreciate your client's presence in our municipality. And I said, thank you, Mr. Mayor. I rest my case. And the board voted unanimously to approve our application, and we never had to call a single witness. That's a great story. It really emblematic of the motto is when you're winning, just shut up. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's a great story. Now, Vince, what would you recommend as someone who's seen both sides, outside and inside, with regard to how lawyers who represent title insurance companies some tips as to how they sh- how they should approach cases, and also some tips as to how they should approach their clients, the insurers and the insurers. The one thing outside counsel has to appreciate the fact that most inside claims people, inside insurance companies, are working very hard, and they don't feel as though they have enough time to get the job done, and they appreciate as much help as they can get, and as much, I won't call it hand-holding, because inside counsel, in a, in a lot of respects, are very capable, very competent title insurance lawyers who know a lot about real estate, and in a, in a lot of respects, a lot more about real estate than a lot of outside counsel really know. But they're overworked, and they need help, and they appreciate help. And so the easier outside counsel can make the life of inside counsel the better the relationship is going to be. You know, you think that doesn't need to be said. A lot of outside counsel tend to be a little bit arrogant and think, hey, I'm the the private lawyer. I know all about this. I know all about cases. I know all about real estate and title insurance. And I'm going to tell inside counsel the way it is. The fact of the matter is inside counsel is very capable and very competent in most circumstances, certainly ones who've been around for a while. So helping inside counsel Get to the end result is really the best thing outside counsel can do. Obviously, inside counsel wants to save as much money as they can, too. So fees are an issue for inside counsel every place. And some outside counsel get concerned sometimes that inside counsel is selecting outside counsel on the basis of the lowest fees rather than the most effective representation. And unfortunately, there's some element of that in among some title insurers, although in the end, the capable outside counsel, if they're sensitive and thoughtful about their fees and how much they're charging for what they're doing, that'll that'll help the relationship, too. Bethany, do you have any questions for Vince? I, I still have some more, but I've been hogging all the questioning. Not really. I just want to say thank you, Vince. You have been such a great resource for me. I know when I first started practicing here at Riker, you were still at the firm before going in-house. And I remember sitting in your office and the two of us looking at deeds from the 1800s that were all handwritten deeds and you explaining them to me. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me as a first-year associate to have you sit down with me and go over those with me and to have you back at the firm now helping out again is just fantastic. And you've been a great mentor to all of us and a great resource. So I just want to say thank you for that. Well, thank thank you, Bethany. How many lawyers know how many feet there are in a chain and a link? <laughs> not enough, Vince, not enough. And speaking of that, Vince, I think you began most of your boundary line cases and everything else 
doing some deed plotting, writing changes of title. And, you know, back in the old days when you did it on paper and not through PowerPoint presentations. Can you take us through how you would sort of handle that type of boundary line, title chain, deed plotting? How did you approach that? Well, you approach it. I actually had some surveying in the Army because I was an artilleryman. So I lugged the chains and stuff around for a while in basic training as an artillery officer. So I knew something about surveying, you know, before I came to practice law. And my first summer in New Jersey, when I was still in Virginia, I was actually in the courthouse in Bergen County in the record room, lugging the books and reading the meets and bounds descriptions. And you just follow it around. You draw the description. You have a compass. You can, you know, you can go 45 degrees north and east and you can go 15 degrees south and west and whatever. You just learn how the compass works and measure your feet and you can you can read a deed and you can plot a deed as well as anybody. Without a, a computer and survey equipment, though, you can't tell whether a deed description closes if you're just plotting it yourself. You can't tell how well it closes, but you can certainly, you know, you can certainly plot it on a piece of paper and see how it fits or doesn't fit with the surrounding properties based upon their meets and bounds descriptions. Now, Vince, I know that in addition to being a premier real estate title insurance lawyer, one of the premier ones in the state of New Jersey, you're also very, very heavily invested in the public utility practice of law. And with regard to our listeners out here, do you have any insider cases you can talk about dealing with title issues with any type of really public utilities? Well, the most interesting ones with energy companies and telecommunications companies, you will see where they have interests in real estate that are outside the the properties on which their plants are located, you'll see easement documents. They are very good about documenting their interests in real estate through easements. And so their property records are really pretty good. Electric companies, telecommunications companies, water companies. Those utilities really have good property records relating to the extent of their interests in real estate. And you can deal with them. You know, you can deal with them. The most difficult utility to deal with, I think, in in terms of title issues are the railroads. Because of the history of the development of railroads and the consolidation of railroads, especially in the Northeast and in New Jersey, where all of us practice you know, you had the Lackawanna, you had central New Jersey, you had all sorts of different railroad lines that ran all over the place. Um, and now they're all consolidated into Conrail, Amtrak, and they both have extensive property records, which are a, an amalgamation of all the property records of all the railroads that form part of the, the consortium now. And getting an understanding of the interest that railroads have in sidings and and what used to be either side tracks or main lines in some cases uh, is very difficult from a title perspective. It's difficult to find the documents. It's difficult to get help sometimes from the railroads themselves about those documents. And it's difficult to get them to release rights they may have. Now, a lot of former railroad right-of-way has been abandoned. There's a process of abandonment that most title nerds know about, you know, application to the federal government 
for abandonment of right of way. And if the right of way is considered to be mainline, an application for abandonment to the federal government has to be made. If it's sidetrack, not necessarily so. But that difference between sidetrack and mainline right of way has caused a lot of title issues and continues to cause a lot of title issues in New Jersey. I've had a, no, a number of cases involving attempting to uh, resolve issues about railroad rights of way and uh, rights to cross them and remove them and whatever. All right. Last question. I know now you assist our real estate department, Vince, in going through title searches and trying to resolve issues that may cause problems with an underwriter insuring or getting comfortable with the deal. Can you give some advice to our real estate practitioners out there, how they should deal with a situation where an underwriter identifies an, an easement or some other encumbrance that really has a significant impact on the deal and has the underwriter cautious enough to raise an exception that may put an end to the transaction? How do you work with the underwriter to give them insurance that you really can get a clear title? And we realize there are times you can't do that, but you know, since this is when you can, can you take us through that or give us an example? Well, you know, Mike, that's a difficult issue. You'll get underwriters who will see easement issues and things like that or defects in title that will be potentially fatal to development that obviously the deal people are anxious to have the insurer, the underwriter, write over those exceptions or encumbrances or defects. And the insurer, in most cases, unless he's going to make a business judgment, just can't do it. And so a lot of times it'll become a question of having the deal maker realize that he's going to have to go back to the person who benefits from the adverse interest to attempt to resolve it in a way that will make development of the property possible. In the real estate department, you have cases every day where exceptions to title come up that at least initially the underwriter will say, look, there's nothing we can do unless we deal with the holder of that adverse interest. It's there. It's a public record. It affects the title. And we're not in a position to write over it because the potential risk and potential cost is just too great. So it's just a question of ultimately of working with the person with the adverse interest, because that will be a more successful way to attempt to resolve those difficult title issues that can't, that, you know, that can't be overridden. All right. With that, I'm going to thank you for your time. Is there any other insight you want to impart to us? Well, thanks, Mike. You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to toot my mouth off. I don't get that opportunity all the time these days. So I appreciate the time and I appreciate all the years I've had with Riker and with all you people. It's been just a great, great ride. Thank you, Vince. We really appreciate you being here, both here on our podcast and here at the firm. As I said before, you've been an invaluable resource. All right. So, Kevin, tell everybody what case we're going to be talking about on today's podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bethany. We're going to be talking about Sullivan v. Maxspan Real Estate and Auction Company. It's a very recent case here in New Jersey from just about not even three weeks ago. It was handed down by the Supreme Court of New Jersey on June 9th, 15 days ago or so. And for anyone who wants to look up the case, you can get it at 2022 NJ Lexus 512. 
And as Kevin said, it was decided on June 9th, 2022. And I also will give you the site of the appellate division opinion for those who are interested. It's 465 NJ Super 243. And that's New Jersey Appellate Division 2020, just in case anybody's interested in getting that one. So, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the case, what the facts were, and sure. then we'll get into the, the heart of the decision and why it's important. Absolutely. So this was a case that arose from the auction of property in Burnsville, New Jersey. So just down the road from us in, at Riker, the property in Burnsville was owned by a trust. So it was the Sylvester L. Sullivan Grantor Retained Income Trust is the full name. And a member of the Sullivan family was the trustee, hence the name of the case. And this property was being put up for auction. And it was ultimately auctioned off on October 20th, 2016 by the Max Fan Real Estate and Auction Company. Uh, again, there's the other party to the case. So again, auction held on October 20th, 2016. The winning bidder bid $1.1 million in the case. So after the, you know, after the bids went through, the winning bidder was, you know, brought to, you know, a particular a separate room where the auction was being held and the all the contracts were filled out. Various different documents were signed at that time, and the bidder at that time or shortly thereafter provided a $121,000 deposit. Again, on that $1.1 million purchase that she had made. Unfortunately, the buyer was unable to get financing for the purchase and ultimately breached her, you know, breached the contract, did not fulfill her obligations under the contract. So, what happened was Max Spam retained that $121,000 deposit that she had paid, ultimately had to go through with a, a second auction, I think about six months later. And at that auction, the property was sold for only $825,000. So obviously a pretty big difference in the cost of the sale. Because of that, the trustee and the trust itself brought suit against Max Fan to try to recover the difference in the amount of the sales. Max and ultimately brought in the buyer as a defendant as well. And, you know, as part of this, Max Fan made a cross claim against the buyer saying that at the very least they should be able to retain the deposit that the buyer had put down when they had made the winning bid. I know you had mentioned that after the auction, the bidder had been taken into a room to sign contract documents, et cetera. But prior to bidding, she was also given various documents as well. Is that correct? What did she get before the auction? She was, and I'm glad you asked about that. So before the auction, part of the process was in order to become a bidder, you have to go through a bidder registration process, and that entails filling out a bidder registration form. Part of that form is you acknowledge that you will fulfill the terms and conditions of the auction. And when you fill out that form, you're provided with a property information package is what they call it. Now, of course, I'm, I don't know that this is the exact process for all of these auctions, but it sounds like this is a fairly standard process and certainly the process that this particular auction house goes through. Part of the property information package that the bidders are given include a basically a sample contract as well as a notice that provides the potential bidder with a number of different disclaimers and you know, a variety of different other pieces of information. These disclaimers include a warning to the buyer to read through the entire package. It makes note that the that Max Span represents the seller of the property, that they don't represent the buyer, that they can't provide 
the buyer or the bidder maybe accurately with legal advice. The limited advice that it provides them is to consult with a lawyer and that a lawyer or attorney will provide them with legal advice. They'll review the contract, help with any pre, pre-option negotiations that are necessary, and generally provides the advice that you should get a lawyer before you enter the bidding process. And I think for purposes of this decision, one of the key things that was in the bidder registration form is that the form confirms that as a condition of participating in the auction, the bidder recognizes that it's an auction, this is an auction sale, and it will not be subject to an attorney review period. And I found that a very significant part of the pre-auction materials that the bidder looked at here. And so with that said, why don't you tell us what the lower court said, and then we'll get to what the Supreme Court did. That's exactly right, Bethany. That's part of that form as well. And what the buyer was arguing in claiming that they shouldn't be held responsible for that deposit and for any other damages on the case is they claimed that in filling out the blanks on the on the contract after the auction had ended, they claimed that do, doing that and providing this form to the bidder without including the attorney review provision that you had mentioned constituted the unauthorized practice of law pursuant to a landmark case called colloquially, I think, known as New Jersey State Bar Association. But the trial court rejected that argument, basically saying that, that, that the New Jersey State Bar Association decision did not apply to the sort of auction sales at issue in this particular instance. The buyer appealed that trial court's decision, went up to the appellate division, very similar, continuing to basically press that argument that this, that this decision mandated that Maxpan or any auction house would have to have this three-day attorney review period in the contract. The appellate division, again, rejected that argument, saying that this particular situation did not constitute the, the unauthorized practice of law. And then, of course, it gets to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court upheld the decision of both the trial court and the appellate. And can you tell us a little bit about what the differences are between auction sales and a traditional sale? And I know in this case, it was an absolute auction. So the court here was looking at an absolute auction versus a traditional sale. And I think that impacted their decision quite a bit here. So can you tell us a little bit about the two different sales and why they would be different, an absolute auction versus traditional sale? Yeah, absolutely. I think that no pun intended. You know, a traditional real estate sale, you know, so to speak, it's not the official phrase by any means, but, you know, I think most people are familiar with a, a, you know, a traditional sale of real estate. You list your property for sale. You may or may not work with a real estate agent. You and people who are interested in the property, they come to you. They may or may not make bids on the property. There's quite a bit of negotiation that, that may or may not go back and forth. There's quite a bit of you know, back and forth between the seller of the property and the potential buyer. You know, it's, I think negotiation is, is kind of the name of the game for the most part. An absolute option is a bit more regimented. What happens is the buyer or, or the seller of the property rather will, will list the, the option or will list the property for auction and they will solicit bidders for the property through, you know, again, the, the, the process of getting these, these bidder registration forms. And what happens is in listing the, the property for auction, they are in essence making a, you think back to our, our law school uh, exams, that, that's the offer portion of, of the contract. They're basically making a, an offer to purchase the property. 
And the auction then goes through and the high bidder, by making that high bid as part of the process, is essentially creating a binding contract by making that high bid and accepting the offer of the seller. And so it's a much more binding process when you get to that end stage where making that high bid, you've created a binding contract. Whereas in a more traditional real estate sale, there's still going to be some hoops to jump through, so to speak, when you get toward the end of that process. And the New Jersey Supreme Court, in upholding the appellate division and the trial court for that matter, really focused on that distinction that the three-day attorney review period that's mandated in sales of traditional real estate is really contemplating that sort of traditional real estate sale process where the potential buyer of a property is going to go back to their attorney. They're going to make sure that the negotiations that they've gone through with the real estate agents cross all the T's and dots all the I's. Whereas an absolute auction is a different animal, right? Where that high bid creates a contract and that's really the end of the line as, as far as how the, how the auction should work. And that mandating a three-day attorney review period would, you know, potentially upend that business model. And they said that to acquire that would not be in the spirit of what that presidential case State Bar Association had held. Kevin, can I ask you a question? Uh, I know you've said it's colloquially known as State Bar Association, but the State Bar brings a lot of cases. What's the actual site, Kevin? It's uh, New Jersey State Bar Association the New Jersey Association of Realtor Boards. It's 93NJ470. It's a 1983 case. One other piece of the decision that I think is important as well that the buyer had really focused her argument on again is that part of that New Jersey State Bar Association case focused on the fact that one of the reasons for that three-day attorney review period is there's a public policy you know, reason to have a clause like that in there to make sure that purchasers of real estate know their rights, that they know that, you know, consulting with an attorney is potentially to their advantage in the purchase of real estate. And the court in this recent case said that by providing that property information package, by providing the, I think even to an extent, the bidder registration form that, you know, Max, the Max Ban or any other, you know, auction house is basically fulfilling that public policy directive. They are making sure that these bidders know about the advantages of hiring an attorney before they purchase it, that they are aware of you know, some of the pitfalls of bidding on a property or purchasing property generally, and that the public policy considerations were being upheld in this case. Yeah, and I would just note that the court here had mentioned that they had three principles derived from our jurisprudence on the unlawful practice of law which they use to guide their determination on the appeal. And those three were, the first one is, quote, the paramount goal of restricting the unauthorized practice of law is not to promote the interests of attorneys, but to serve the public right to protection against unlearned and unskilled advice in matters relating to the science of law. So that was the first of their principles. And I did find that interesting that they were pointing out, hey, we're trying to protect the public here. When we're talking about unauthorized practice of law, it's not about lawyers and dealing with them. We're trying to protect the public here. And the second one is, quote, although it is clear that in real estate transactions, the parties will would be well advised to retain counsel, the public interest sometimes requires that non-attorney professionals be permitted to engage in activities 
that constitute the practice of law under appropriate conditions. So that was the second of the principles that they used to guide the determination here. And then the third and last one was, quote, we seek in each case a fair and practical solution that takes into account the essential features of the transaction chosen by the parties, end quote. And so they really were looking at that policy aspect as well when coming to their conclusion here. And at the end of the day, I think they actually used the word incompatible, that a three-day attorney review period would be incompatible with absolute auction sales like we have at issue here in this case. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they did use that word. And I think that's a really strong word in this decision, right? You know, it suggests that not only is it not required, that it, you know, almost couldn't, you know, it couldn't possibly be required, right? They didn't, they didn't use those words, right? But I think that that's what they're getting at with, you know, by calling it incompatible. And so the language, I just pulled it up. They say, quote, the attorney review period prescribed by that decision is incompatible with the sale of residential real estate by absolute auction. Were we to permit counsel to cancel contracts for any reason after an auction, as in a traditional real estate transaction, buyers would be deprived of the opportunity to purchase property at a bargain price and sellers would lose the benefit of an accelerated and final sale. So in these cases, the court's saying that just doesn't work anymore. And I will know for our listeners, the court did somewhat limit what they were saying here. There's a footnote in the decision, footnote five, where they are saying they're not addressing traditional real estate sales where there's multiple potential bidders or buyers who come and make a bidding war. And they're not talking about online auctions that what they're talking about here is the situation we had in the appeal at issue here. So the properties being sold at an absolute auction or an auction without reserve. And that's what they're talking about in this case. So it shouldn't be overread to be included, to be holding no right of review on any other situation other than what they're looking at here. So that's footnote five, where they're limiting it just as a caution to make sure everyone's aware of that as well. Yeah, I thought that was an important footnote that they included where obviously the court knew what type of cases it was dealing with. And I think that a lot of real estate professionals will probably implicitly understand, you know, understand that. But obviously there may be other scenarios that are described as an auction or that maybe even just the way that they develop. I think that they said traditional real estate purchases where there are different buyers bidding against each other that may have the feel of an auction, right? But <laughs> they're, not, they're not talking about those types of scenarios. All right. Is there anything else that you want to add on this case before we wrap it up? No, I, I didn't have anything else. I think we went over it in pretty great detail. Yeah. Again, this a very recent decision right here in New Jersey, though. So I thought it was a great case to discuss. Definitely. And I will just so everyone has them again give you a few of the sites here. The case we're discussing is Sullivan versus Max Span Real Estate and Auction Company, 2022, NJ Lexus 512. And the appellate division site I gave you earlier, if you want to check out that opinion. But the other opinion we did want to give you, make sure that you had the site for, is the New Jersey State Bar Association versus New Jersey Association of Realtor Boards, as that's the case that the Supreme Court here was discussing. And again, that site is 93NJ470, and it was modified at 94NJ449. So I think that's all for now, and we thank you for listening to Title Nerds. And I think that wraps up our season opener of season two. 
Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.